Well, let's just continue at that, at that, at that slide, at that spot where we left off. Again, the conception of state church, you always have to keep the main heading of these slides in mind. The, okay, sometimes I, I give a presentation, I forget to actually mention that. And then afterwards I get questions, were you opposed to a state church or were you in favor? <laughs> so, so what I'm talking about is indicated by the main heading. Right? And you should know now that I'm opposed to a state church. So if you see that as a heading, you know what I'm actually saying about it. Uh, obviously, that doesn't reflect my own personal opinion. I'm opposed to it. Okay? So the state ideally has ideally nothing to do with organization of churches offices and their succession, questions of doctrine and worship, particular policies of the churches, internal administration and internal discipline. Now, if this would be a true state church, like we have one in England, for example, like the one we have in German up till 1919. Now, we still have the Lutheran Church and the Catholic Church in Germany, they are still called state churches, but they are not true state churches. They are state churches in name only. Since 1919, we do not have a, a true state church in Germany. But there are other countries like Switzerland and Sweden and so on and so forth, where you do have a established church, a state church. And if you do, they all interfere. The state always interferes in matters of the church. That's always the case. Like the church wants to meddle in politics, but the real scenario, the reality of the matter is the state meddles in the affairs of the church. And this is why it's so uh, dangerous. Concept of state church again. The subordination of the church to the state means. So if we have a state church, right? This is what it means. Loss of spiritual freedom. Loss of authority on the part of the church. Loss of, Christ, of Christians' sense of accountability to God. Now these are very precious privileges or should I say realities in a church? We should exercise spiritual freedom. We should have authority to govern our own affairs at a church or inside a church. We should be able to be utterly accountable to God and no one else. Church has ideally nothing to do with particular policies of the state questions of administration and method, political platforms, reform programs. Now, I could just repeat these points again and repeat them again just to impress these statements on your mind. Because this is the area where the temptation actually becomes real. 
because we observe certain policies being put into place which we don't like as Christians. Right? Since we don't like them, the temptation is there to counteract. Right? And it's a real temptation. And I can understand that. I can sympathize with this point of view. It's not that I'm totally opposed to it in the theoretical sense. I do sympathize with that. Because, let's face it, in America there are lots of laws on the books which a Christian with a good conscience cannot support. And sadly enough, these laws are multiplying. It doesn't matter if there is a Democratic president or a Republican president. As a matter of fact, right now, all, almost all of his campaign promises, which Donald Trump gave to his more conservative constituency, with many Christians included, he's flip-flopping just about every single one. What he said he would do, he does the very opposite right now. And he has a lot of conservative Christians really upset because he fooled them. And in some ways, they were calling for that. Right? Because they were utterly focused on getting Donald Trump into office, thinking he would champion their cause. And now he's flip-flopping all over the place. And they called for it because they should not have become involved. Even though, obviously, uh, in many ways, I do have a certain sympathy, personal sympathy for that. Now, remember, I'm talking about the church. I'm not talking about individual Christians. And I already made that distinction pretty clear. So, here's a book, Cabo. <laughs> it's a book, it's a real book. It says, Congress shall make no law, and obviously this is America, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion. And then subtitle, why the Christian right is wrong. <laughs> now, I do admit I haven't read that book, but when I did a keyword search, this book cover came up, and I thought it is kind of fitting. <laughs> it fits that particular theme, subject I'm presenting here. So the Christian right is, is, is wrong. And it doesn't matter that most Conservative Christians are part of that movement in some ways. It's wrong. It's biblically wrong for a church to be part of that movement. And I give you some more. I give you some more ammunition in regards to the thesis I'm presenting to you as being the biblical one. Subordination of the state to which church, okay, now it's the other scenario, right? We just spoke about the subordination of the church to the state. Now we talk about the subordination of the state to the church. What happens then? Leads to subservience of worldly powers to ecclesiastical authority and the secularization of the church. So the church becomes a worldly institution, right? If it it's the highest political power. It is a worldly institution, first and foremost. 
And if these are the political rule laws, now they are not, but if they would be, and in centuries past they were, right? Just look at them. Do they follow Jesus Christ? Do they want to see uh, biblical piety being promoted in that particular state which they rule? Well, obviously not. Right? They have a very different agenda. And the different, uh, different agenda is very much opposed to true Christianity. Very much so. Okay. Now we get closer to the real subject matter of the core of that presentation. Okay, God took centuries to separate, starting in Old Testament times, separate his people from the political realm in which the church or his people uh, existed. Now in our time, our time, meaning the 20th century in particular, and then obviously going into the 21st century, is characterized first and foremost. Okay, this is our century or the century, uh, the immediate century prior to this one. It's characterized first and foremost by one specific movement. Okay, we have reached a certain separation, state of separation between church and state. Now, within the 20th century, and we start at the very beginning of that century, we could even start at the end of the 19th century already. The 20th century has uh, brought these two spheres uh, slowly but surely together again. This is the meaning, or this is the most distinctive characteristic of the 20th century, that movement. And we are obviously now at the beginning of the 21st, so over a hundred years, and if we start at the end of the 19th century, even more than a hundred years, this movement of bringing both realms together has progressed. So if they had already more than a hundred years' time to do that, where are we now in that scheme of things? Well, I believe we are right here. That's what I believe. And you remember why I said this is the apostasy, right? We are, we are right here already. And I'm, okay, I'm talking about the liberal, social gospel is the liberal branch of the churches, but that overlap happened during the time when the evangelical churches, after the Second World War, the evangelical churches were on the ascendancy. The evangelical churches made sure that this happened. Right? In America it's called the Christian right. And there are some other terms being used. Uh, sadly, I don't know much about Australia. I would like to know more. And Pastor Gary enlightened me in regards to certain aspects already. And this was very helpful, but, but you know your local situation much better than I do. So you can really identify what is happening in this country in regards to the merging of these two entities. And I believe, like Hillsong or Planet Shakers, they are the main forces behind 
the merging. And if you see that, you can identify these particular institutions as apostate churches. I hope you understand how I get to that conclusion. They are apostate institutions because this is their agenda. Apart from anything else they do, but this is their main agenda. They may not say it, but just look closely at the things they do. Go to their website. Do a little research. And I believe fairly quickly you will see that being displayed in some ways. Would you agree? I don't know. If you have already done a little reading, a little research on that end, I would say you would agree with me. Okay, the social gospel. We need to understand the social gospel. And obviously, this is something on the liberal end of, end of things, on the liberal spectrum. And evangelicals usually take the attitude that I'm an evangelical, I'm a conservative Christian, I don't care what the liberals do. It doesn't concern me at all. And if you have that attitude, if you assume that attitude, well, you are ready to step into a trap. It's a pitfall. Why? Because what the liberals over here do and have done has infiltrated into the evangelical church. And you are, you are not able to identify it. If you don't know this, this history here, you are ignorant in regards to the infiltration of what they did over here within the realm of the evangelical churches. And this is what concerns me. Yes, okay, I don't care about the liberals as liberals, but I want to know what they did because I see the same thing happening in the evangelical churches nowadays. So what was the agenda of the liberal churches, which has become the agenda of evangelical churches? Definition. Okay, definition and influence. Definition first, theological vision of establishing the kingdom of God on earth. Now this needs to have some explanation. This book, wherever it is, it's beneath my Bible. Okay, this book has the title Ecumenical Quest for a World Federation. And this is a very descriptive title and it fits perfectly the content of the book. But this book was originally my PhD thesis. And the original title was Building the Kingdom of God on Earth. Building the Kingdom of God on Earth. That was the original title. Yes? Oh, did I press something accidentally? No? Uh, let me see. Social gospel. Okay. Well, thank you for letting me know. I, I, did, I don't know what I did. But I didn't do it intentionally. Well, this book was called Building the Kingdom of God on Earth once I published it as a book. PhD thesis. Now, this was a perfect title. It conveyed exactly what the content of that book was all about. The Kingdom of God. Building the Kingdom of God on Earth. But most people who were just reading that, that line, that, that title, were thinking, oh, this is a missionary book. This is how we can start new churches 
and evangelize and bring new Christians into the church and things like that. Building the kingdom, right? This is what we need to do. This is, this is what we want to do. And do when we evangelize. Well, obviously it's not. Well, in, in a certain sense it is. But not in this sense. So, if the title, Building the Kingdom of God on Earth, and Ecumenical Quest for a World Federation is one and the same, because it is. The meaning of building the kingdom of God was very different from what you think it is. And that was done purposefully, intentionally. Why? Because they wanted to fool the Christians. On purpose. They said, oh, let's get busy in the Lord's kingdom. <laughs> right? That sounds wonderful. Yes, this is... Oh, excuse me. I forget. <laughs> I have a microphone. This is what I, as a Christian, this is what I want to do. <laughs> so you started doing what they told you to do, and ultimately you might have realized or might not have realized that what they meant by building McKinney is setting up a world federation or world government, which is a political agenda. Right? You are thinking, well, I evangelize. This is a spiritual agenda. Or setting up new churches. Spiritual duty or task or agenda. No, they had a political agenda in mind when they used that slogan, that phrase, building the kingdom of God on earth. We want to set up a world federation or a world government. And they wanted to use the Christians for that purpose. Right? Now, how ingenious, and I put that in, in quotation marks. Obviously, I don't think it's ingenious in a certain sense. I think it's utterly evil. But from their perspective, how ingenious was it to use Christian vocabulary, Christian terminology, biblical phrases in order to hide their true agenda, which was purely political. And it worked. Lots of Christians got involved. And the way how they got involved was called the social gospel. And this is why we need to concern ourselves with the social gospel. Because it was a theological vision of establishing the kingdom of God on earth. So establishing what? A world government. World government. Influence, huge impact on theology, religious liberty, social reform, political involvement, democratic values. Huge influence, impact. It totally changed the society at the time. And we are talking early 20th century, in America mostly, but in some other countries as well. It totally revolutionized that society. Because the Christians were fooled to participate in that particular movement. Headline, social gospel. So pay attention to that. So support of or conflict between Christian teaching, liberal ideas of democracy and freedom. This is where it gets a bit interesting or a bit tricky. If the two 
value systems are being um, intertwined, mixed, mixed up. Shouldn't we become active in promoting freedom, democratic values, liberal ideas, or conservative value system in society? Shouldn't this be a major concern of us as Christians? If, if it's not our concern, well, whose concern would it be, right? If we don't take care of that particular, uh, promoting that particular value system in our society, probably no one else would. So is this not our duty? Is this not the same as what here in the church is being taught, Christian teaching, right? Ten Commandments, for example, or the Sermon on the Mount, or Romans 12, right? There are lots of different commandments in Romans 12. I'm not even talking about Romans 13. Now, obviously, we could also take in Romans 13, where Paul admonishes the Christians to be good citizens, right? So, in some ways, this is utterly appealing to us. And I, I feel the force of, of that particular appeal. I do. Right? I, I'm keenly interested in freedom because I want to have the freedom to worship as I see fit. Right? If that freedom is taken away, well, it gets really difficult for me to worship, to practice my Christian faith as I see fit. So in some ways, I do feel the the force of that argument. And as a human being, I have some sympathy for it. But this is why a temptation is a temptation. A temptation is not something which presents to you something you don't like, you cannot relate to, right? A temptation presents to you something you truly like and admire and, and would like to see happen, right? But it's a temptation, meaning we are admonished not to give in to the temptation. And we have some scriptures where God will not test you beyond our ability. He will always give you a way out. So we should not give in. And this is very difficult for us to do. It's very difficult for me. But I just have to call myself back to the scriptures. What does the scripture say? How should I conduct my own affairs within a society which is becoming more and more godless? Should I stay out of the contest? Should, not, should I not bring in my own Christian values into that society? My answer to that is a categorically no if you have the church in focus. This is not what a church is supposed to do. If I leave a church and go out of a door, if I'm just a single Christian and look around, there are things to do for me in society. As a matter of fact, very needful things to do for me. but not the church. Not the church as a body. And it's very important uh, to understand that. 
So I do not, as, as like if I would be a pastor, I do not support democracy. Right? I do not support the a political party which is called libertarian or liberal in America or Republican. Don't support it. Did I vote for Donald Trump? No, but I could not. I'm a German citizen, so I could not. Had I been an American citizen, would I have voted for Donald Trump because I totally despise Hillary Clinton and what she stands for? The answer is no. And there are many reasons I won't go into it. Now, if someone would have done so, as a Christian, as a single Christian, would I have said, well, you sinned? No. Because he did it as a single Christian, and he saw it as his civil duty. Okay? Understand? But I see the big, cha uh, the big influence of the Republican Party as a political institution on the Christian church. And, as I already stated, Donald Trump is flip-flopping because this is exactly what I expected him to do. He was a lifelong Democrat mem uh, member of a Democratic Party, a lifelong member of a Democratic Party. He has only switched over to the Republicans because he saw a greater chance to become a president under the Democratic label. Right? So he fooled a lot of people. He did not fool me, but obviously I couldn't even vote. But that's just one example. Do I like a government, even if I don't vote for it, but do I like a government, and Pastor Gary enlightened me a little bit in regards to the situation here, which values conservative ideals? over against another government which values socialistic ideas? Yes, for certain. Sure. Will I get involved in political campaigns for that party? No. I have better things to do, right? My focus is on Christ coming back. His setting up his kingdom. I'm part of his people. He is my king. I pay allegiance to him first and foremost. This means I have a duty to fulfill, and this duty is very clearly defined. Proclaim the gospel. Teach the, the sheep, the flock, in biblical principles. Right? Baptize if I'm a pastor, and so and so forth. If I busy myself in all of these tasks, there's not much time left, not much strength left, not much resources left to do anything else. Social gospel politics. And I, I chose these terms deliberately. And more and more, I believe you understand why I did that. Right? What was the main concern of a social gospel? Well, it was politics and only politics. It was not the proclamation of the gospel, even though they used the term gospel within their particular uh, designation label. Church has something to do with conscience back of political platforms. 
or spirit finding expression in reform. Okay, this is social gospel politics. Now that seems to be, that sounds kind of good, but this is what I argue against, right? This is what I don't want us to get involved in. And this is also the point where sometimes I lose some of the people within my audience. Right? Because they are so concerned about all these things on the worldly, political end of the spectrum. Where they just can't make themselves get out of it. And they watch the evening news every single day religiously. They can wait to turn on the TV to hear the next episode of nightly news. Because they want to be informed. I want to be in tune with what's happening in society. And this is the means how I can do it. These shows are there to provide me with the information I need in order to know, to be in the know, to be in tune with what is happening in society. Right? Well, I have news for you. Many years ago, we got rid of our TV. And I'm all the better for it. Now, you can keep your TV. I'm not saying you have to do the same, which I did. But it was a very helpful thing to do for me and my family. Because it prevented me from giving in to the temptation of turning on the TV every night at the same time so that I am in tune with what is happening in society. And the real thing of that situation is, and this may offend you, I, I can't help it. Even if you would watch a news show all day long, you flip through the channels, and there are quite a number of selections in America, ABC, CBS, CNN, Fox News, and so on and so forth. If you watch all of them every day from morning till night, you are less in tune with what's happening than if you wouldn't know anything about it. Because they are there to deceive you. And I could give you example after example after example. And as a matter of fact, the whole presentation, I'm not giving that presentation tonight, or perhaps not even as long as I'm here, but I have a whole presentation to give you one example after another, how you are being fooled. And yes, they are very adept, very skillful to present to you that information in such a way that you think you are totally in tune. You are totally informed of what is happening. And TV is a perfect medium for that. Because you see pictures, moving pictures. You get a commentary of these journalists and their opinions. And this makes so much sense, right? especially if you prefer a conservative news channel over against a liberal news channel. And why, especially, let's just say it, and I got into trouble just recently in another church for saying it, the so-called conservative news channels are way more adept in fooling you than the others. The others are outright liberal. <laughs> and you know they are liberal, and we don't like them. And here, thank goodness, we have another channel which is conservative. And the reality of the situation is, and I 
try, I spend a few hours, Pastor Gary can attest to that, we spend together a few hours just to look, look up certain resources in regards to the conservative news channel in America. The reality of the matter is, and I can prove it, and I did prove it to Pastor Gary at least in the little time he had, and I could give him much more information if he cares to. The conservative news channel of America is called Fox News. This channel is the Marxist channel of America. Marxist channel, the most left-wing channel America has, calling itself conservative. And lots of American Christians are religiously, religiously tuning in to that particular channel, thinking they get the news they want to hear. And what they get presented in reality is Marxism of a purest kind. And they don't even know it. And this is a big tragedy. And, and I did say that in, in just one statement. I didn't even expound on it. And I got a really negative response back. Really negative. <laughs> and they did not have one single, single counter-argument. Not one. Couldn't disprove what I said, factually. But in some other ways, they let me know that they were really displeased with what I said. Okay, this is social gospel politics. Social gospel, this is left liberalism in the Christian veneer. Nothing Christian about it, but presenting a Christian veneer in order to fool you. Okay, and here I will give you some concrete examples. And if they don't convince you, I don't have any other chance because I think they are so utterly convincing. And I, I just pick a few little isolated quotes from two books written in 1895. Okay, let that date sink into your conscience. 1895. And the other one was written in 1909. So both of them are over 100 years old, right? Two different American authors. Both claim to be Christians. One was a Christian pastor, and the other was a professor at a, at a so-called Christian college. Both were proponents of the social gospel. They both wrote two books within 14 years of a span of time span of 14 years apart. George Heron was one of them. He was a proponent, as I said, of a social gospel, and he wrote about the strategy of creating a Christian state. And the title of the book is, see the source? The Christian State. That was the title of the book. Now, go to archive.org. Archive .org. Type in the title, type in the name of the author, and you get a perfect PhD, um, excuse me, PDF, PDF version of that book. Easily downloadable, and you can start reading. The Christian State. The other book, which I will also quote from just in a few minutes, was written by Samuel St. Batten. Samuel St. Batten, 1909. The title of that book was The Christian State. 
two different authors, two books having the same title. That's no coincidence. So these both books were written to promote one idea and one idea only, and you will immediately see what that particular idea is. Okay, let's start voting. No one, uh, excuse me, not only must the state become Christian, but Christianity must become political. The only way by which Christianity can, in the largest sense, be put into practice is through possessing the state as its organ. The one organ of both Christianity and society, and society is obviously the political aspects of society. Christianity needs the state for its realization as much as the state needs Christianity for its redemption and perfection. Let's just pause here. This is just one part of that vote. And I will uh, quickly, in the next slide, continue that particular quote because it becomes even more explicit, even more clearly uh, visible what he intended to do. But that is already enough or should be enough to convince you of what that particular agenda of a social gospel was all about. And I called it the merging of state and church. That's what I called it. So if you want to be, if you follow that agenda, if you want to be a Christian, the only way you can be a Christian is through the state. Without the state, you cannot be a Christian. But the state is the organ for you to use, or the, uh, the agent for you to use in order to practice your Christianity. It's not the church, right? The church needs to be or Christianity needs to become political. So if you are getting involved in a political arena, you are practicing your Christianity. If you don't get involved in a political arena, you are not a Christian. This is how you define your Christianity, by getting involved in politics. And if you don't do it, as I already said, you are not a Christian. Because by definition, this is what a Christian is. He concerns himself with politics. Christianity can supply the only forces that can procure social justice. And the state is the only organ through which these forces can work constructively upon and within a whole people. And the next is just highlighting. Okay, He didn't do that, but I do just to show you this is a very important passage. There can be no adequate actualization of Christianity in the world except it actualize itself in the political life of a nation. But people can never be wholly Christian until the state becomes the organized Christianity of the people. The unity of the whole people with God in the mind of Christ must proceed through the state. It is through the state that Christianity will have to organize the people in the social order of a communion of the Holy Ghost. Okay, you tell me, 
Is this explicit? Is this clear? Does he mince words? Does, does he get his message across? Right? 1895. And the Christians bought into that. Remember, influence, huge impact. They totally changed society afterwards. It was not the same America uh, after 20 years uh, following the publication of that book. Jesus Christ, and I'm just continuing the quotation, and this is the last slide of that particular um, quotations from that particular book. Jesus Christ is the ruler of the kings of the earth. And Christianity is sent to disturb the nations and their governments. Okay. <laughs> open, open your Bible. Matthew 20. No, you don't do it now. <laughs> I'm just, just saying because you know that verse. Open it at chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. This is the passage about the Great Commission, right? What Christians are commanded to do Evangelizing the world, right? Teaching the disciples the things I commanded you, and so on and so forth. I don't believe this is exactly what Jesus had in mind. The state is a religious organism. Politics is religion, true or false, and nothing else. Now, remember what I said at the very beginning of my presentation last night. What is first? Is it politics or is it religion? My answer was, it's religion. It's religion in the ancient time. And my contention was, even though the appearance is different in our own culture, in our own generation, in our own country, we think that politics supersedes religion. Religion is somewhere down here. has nothing, uh, no influence in society. Well, I believe the reality of the matter is religion still has the first spot and will never, never give up that. Right? Because it has the first spot in, in this society despite its claim to be a secularized society or a multicultural society or whatever. It's still, religion still uh, presides over everything else. And this is where, where the conflict with the church comes in, right? If religion is here in this realm in the top spot, and if the church wants to separate, that particular religion does not allow it, does not want to see that happen, does everything it can in its power to pull the church back into this realm. And this book was written to, do, to accomplish that purpose. And sadly enough, it was extremely successful in doing so. So the state is a religious organism. Politics is religion, true or false, and nothing else. But people act politically what they believe religiously. I do, uh, I do agree with that statement. They follow their religion and must they do certain political things. The politics of the people is a living record of their religious faith. And I do agree with that too. But there are different religions, right? Whatever the religion may be, whether it be politically acknowledged or not, 
that state is the realized religion of the people. The state is the realized, the real religion of that realm, of the people. Well, the church should be pure enough to be the organ through which Christ's social forces come. It is through the state that the Christian religion must realize the perfect society of the kingdom of God. Through the state. That's the key phrase. Through the state. Christianity has to work through the state to realize a perfect society. That is our task. If you're over here, this is your task. And you better not fail. You better do a very good job at it. And the kingdom of God, okay, the perfect society is defined as the kingdom of God. How do liberals or the social gospel proponents define the kingdom of God? World government. So you get active in promoting world government if you are over here. Social gospel politics, age-long conflict between church and state will cease when each learns to serve the common life. Okay, remember, social gospel politics, I'm opposed to that, okay? I explained that before. I'm not promoting this here. <laughs> Learns to serve the common life. This is the propaganda slogan you hear all over the place. You don't want to be someone who stands at left field, who is not concerned about the well-being of your society, Right? You have so much to give. Well, why don't you want to get involved? That's good for you and that's good for society. Begins to cooperate. Remember? This action. Begins to cooperate in behalf of man's social progress. And you don't want to be left behind. If you are so uh, boneheaded. If you think that this is not worth getting involved in, well, you are just the lowest of the low. Right? You hear that all over the place, verbalized or not. And this is why the state is not so happy with me or with you if you follow what I'm saying. If you follow what I believe the scripture says. This is why we are called the scum of the earth. Second Corinthians, the scum of the earth. Are you willing to be called the scum of the earth? You better. Because this is what a Christian is called. This is what Paul was called. He was stoned, I don't know how many times, he was beaten. 39 uh, lashes. Many times. He was beheaded, ultimately. Or we other disciples, apart one, were killed as martyrs. Lots of other Christians were killed as martyrs because they are the scum of the earth. That's my confession. Now, I, I don't like it necessarily. As a human being, I don't like that. But this is what I am as a Christian. And my, I hope, hopefully my action will testify to that fact, that others will call me the scum of the earth. And as a matter of fact, this is something, well, not the exact words, but the intended meaning, this is something I hear just about every day. 
just about. Do I like it? No. Will I change my message or my actions in order for them to stop calling me that? No. Is God's grace sufficient? Do I do it in my own strength? No. Do I do, I, do, I do it in the name of Christ because he said if you follow me, they will they called me Beelzebul. If you follow me, they will call you Beelzebul, meaning devil. They will call you a devil too. Kingdom of God. Jesus Christ heads over all things. Okay, once again, social gospel politics. I'm not promoting that. Jesus Christ heads over all things, including principalities and powers. This is how they want to make it plausible to you, why you should come over to this side. Kingdom of God, sovereign over state, sovereign over the church. And this is the trick. If you get that particular, the meaning of that particular slide, you, get, you understand what they do. Okay, they don't say necessarily, especially in America, they don't say, well, we need to have a state church. Because every American, especially every American pastor, doesn't like the idea of a state church. I'm the pastor of my church and I'm totally independent. And I will stay independent. So if, you, if these proponents come to him and say, well, let's just become part of one big state church, <laughs> they will not get very far. So they use a different trick. They say, oh, no, we don't want to have a state church. That's the least thing we want to accomplish. But think about that spiritual principle. Jesus Christ is sovereign, right? He's sovereign over state, he is also sovereign over the church. Since he is your Lord. Alright? Get the drift of that argument. Uh, since he is sovereign over the state too, well, and you are following him, he has the authority over the state, which is actually true. But the argument, how they use it, is false. Why not get involved in that sphere as well as in the church? Kingdom of God, devotion of church and state to the one great ideal of God's kingdom on earth produces unity between both institutions. Since God is sovereign over both realms, we bring both together. But at a higher level, the level of the kingdom of God. Not the level of a church, not the level of a state, but at the level of a kingdom of God which encompasses both spheres. This is where we find the unity. And when they turn around and redefine what they mean by kingdom of God. Right? This is the trick. And they define it as world government. Participation in many common enterprises, promotion of peaceful relations, gradual merger of church and state, loss of individual identity and perfected kingdom in the perfected kingdom of humanity. Uh, ultimately, they have to come clean. And they do, sometimes, if you listen carefully enough. They come clean in stating clearly what they truly mean by these particular religious slogans. 
It's the kingdom of humanity. This is their main concern. They may call it kingdom of God, but ultimately what they truly mean is kingdom of humanity. And by that, again, they mean world government, world federation. Okay, and we are coming very, very quickly now to the end, and I just want to give you uh, another taste of that other second book with the title of the Christian State, 1909. Quote, well, let's, let's skip, skip over this. Uh, let's go to this quote. In conclusion, we find that the state, in order to be free, to make progress and fulfill its true functions, has had to separate itself from the church. Will you agree with the statement? Absolutely. They are not dumb, right? I already told you, they are, they are ingenious in the way how they present their case. They say, oh yes, we want separation of state and church. This is what we want. Well, continue reading. And the church, in order to live its true life, to do its work and serve the higher interests of man has had to free itself from the state and its dominions. Amen to that too. Well, something doesn't match up, right? This is a book on the Christian state. Something is just not quite lining up, right? There's some, well, I think in, in America I would say there's a skunk in the wood pile. Somewhere. You, you smell something, but you don't see the skunk necessarily, but you smell something already. Now, I show you the skunk right here. But church and state have become thus differentiated in form and function that they may become truly complementary institutions and may attain the higher unity of the spirit. Right? Now you know what he intended to really say and what he was aiming at. He was just, the, um, just taking away all your weapons which you can use to oppose him. And once you opened up your armor, he thrust his sword into your breast, into your heart. If saying, well, we need a higher unity of the two. In the spirit, of course. In a word, church and state attain a separate and distinct life with each realizing its true function in the world, yet with both cooperating towards one end in order that both may find their higher unity in the spirit and may together seek the kingdom of God. Don't be fooled. Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for enlightening us through the Word and the Spirit in us. Lord, we need to be alerted to these pitfalls and temptations. And I do grieve about many of the churches falling for that political agenda which is so detrimental to your cause, to the cause of the gospel. Lord, I just pray that you keep us apart, that you help us to understand what our true task in this world is. And this is 
first and foremost to worship you as our Lord and King and Savior, but also to come together as a church once again to worship you and to be instructed in biblical truth and to be equipped in order to be your witnesses in this world. And I pray that you use us for that purpose. It's a spiritual agenda. And we want to see people truly saved and truly discipled and becoming Christians who are vibrant in their testimony of the glorious gospel. And I praise you for that opportunity you have given me here at, that, at this church to emphasize these points as best as I could. Amen.